you got a bulletin on the way in, you can take that out. There's an outline, sort of walk you through what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible uh, or you want to grab one close by, you can find the book of Acts and the book of Genesis. We're going to look at scriptures uh, from both of those books before we're done this morning, Acts and Genesis. This is week three in our series, The Character of God. And in this series, we're asking ourselves, who who is God, and specifically, what is he like? What are things that we can say about him that are true, that will help us understand him better, and ultimately love him more? And so we started off, uh, we just sang about God's holiness. That's where we started, God's holiness. Last week, we talked about his self-existence. This morning, We're going to talk about God's sovereignty in weeks to come, his goodness, faithfulness, power, patience, wrath, and love. So this morning we're thinking about God's sovereignty. And I want to begin with a quote. The quote comes from a guy named A.W. Tozer. And he says this, The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. Do you understand he's really saying two things in that statement? Number one, he's saying most people who claim the name of Christ have too low a view of God. They do not think thoughts that are big enough or high enough to suit him. And he's saying there's a consequence for that. The fact that so many of us think low thoughts, have a low view of God, is the cause or it results in many, many other lesser evils. And he's saying the greater evil is to think too low of God. That's the greatest evil. But when you do that, it leads to, it results in hundreds of lesser evils. That statement is true. You can apply it to to many of God's attributes. It's particularly true when you think about God's sovereignty. It's something that we need to understand. It's something that too few people understand, and it's something we're going to try to wrap our arms around this morning. So we'll begin with a definition, sovereignty defined. Most basically, we would say sovereignty, God's sovereignty, is the outworking of his power. That's just sort of the simplest way to think about God's sovereignty. It's the outworking of his power. God is powerful. We're going to focus on that in a few weeks. He is powerful, and he doesn't just sit on that power. He doesn't just have it and not use it. He has it, and he exercises that power over everything that he has made. In some sense, you could think of God's sovereignty as his ruling and his reigning over everything that exists. He is sovereign over all of it. He is powerful over all of it. He rules over all of it. He reigns over all of it. One of the things I kept finding as I studied this week and I read different authors talking about God's sovereignty is what you might call a a strand of three chords, three of God's attributes that are really wrapped up in his sovereignty. So we'll expand our simple definition just a little bit. If God is sovereign, it means he's all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. He's all-knowing. The, the technical term, the theological term would be he is omniscient. He knows all things, past, present, future, and he knows them perfectly. 
We don't know all things. We don't know perfectly. God knows perfectly. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. There's absolutely nothing that is too difficult or too hard for him. And again, we'll, we'll discuss that in a few weeks. And he's free. He's truly free. He's absolutely free. There is no one creaturely thing that can constrain him or hold him back. He knows all things. He can do all things. And nothing holds him back. You can think about it like this. I'll give you one more quote. This one is not on your notes. A.W. Pink, he's always quotable. He says, God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him. None can hinder him. That's God's sovereignty. He does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases, and nobody can control him or constrain him or hold him back. I'm not sure I can overstate how important it is for you today to understand this attribute of God. And I realize that every week in this study, I end up saying, this is probably the most important thing that you need to understand about God. This one is probably the most important thing you need to understand about. It's really important. I don't know that I can overstate. Let me give you just one example that might make sense of this. How many of you remember in school learning about something called the Rosetta Stone? I'm not talking about the program that teaches you languages today. I'm talking about the actual Rosetta Stone, okay? They discovered it in 1799. The Brits discovered it. They took it back to the UK. They house it in the British Museum. It's still there. You can visit it today. And it's divided into three sections. And I'll put a little red line up here. You can sort of see the top are hieroglyphics. Egyptian hieroglyphics, the sort of pictures you imagine on a temple or a pyramid or something like that. The middle section is script. It's letters, Egyptian lettering, Egyptian script. And the bottom is ancient Greek. So you've got Egyptian hieroglyphics, you've got Egyptian script in the middle, and at the bottom you have ancient Greek. And all three sections say the exact same thing. And the reason the Rosetta Stone was important is that before they found this stone, scholars and linguistics uh, experts and archaeologists and historians, they looked at Egyptian hieroglyphics and they said, well, those are nice. Those are pretty pictures. That's great decoration on the wall. I mean, they didn't know that they had any real meaning. They just sort of thought they were pictures. But they discovered this stone and they read the script in the middle and they read the script on the bottom and they said, hey, that says the exact same thing and there's something on the top, and they began to decipher it. The Rosetta Stone was like a, a key, like a, a decoder key that helped all these scholars look back at hieroglyphics and say, hey, there's a, there's a meaning here. There's a pattern here that we didn't understand before. What I'm suggesting to you is that the sovereignty of God is a bit like a Rosetta Stone as you read the Bible. I'm always shocked at people who have read the Bible, studied the Bible, looked through the Bible, they're familiar with Bible stories, and then struggle with this attribute of God. They, they wrestle with it. They're just not quite sure about it. Because I think when you get this attribute in your mind, in your heart, I think every time you turn the page in this book, you see it. Every single page. I can tell you, the season of my life. It's about a senior in high school. 
when for the first time I really got it into my mind, and I'm not saying got it comprehensively, but I mean got it truly. Okay, the God of the Bible, the holy, self-existent God that, that I'm reading about in this book, he's sovereign over everything. He does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. I remember when I got that, and then I went back and started reading the Bible again. And I thought, oh, there it is. There it is. There it is again. There it is again on every single page. And maybe the greatest challenge this morning as we talk about God's sovereignty is sort of saying, well, what page of the Bible are you going to look at to, to show the people this? It's on every page. When you see this, it changes the way that you read the Scripture. It changes the way that you think about God. It's vital, vitally, vitally important that you and I understand it. Now, I want to acknowledge one thing before we go on. I don't want to take a deep dive into philosophy. We did a little bit of that last week. We all left with a headache. I don't want to do it again this morning. But I want to acknowledge a couple of questions people ask when they think about and they really begin to grasp the sovereignty of God over all things. Here are two very common questions. Question one, if God is sovereign over all things, if that's true, how do we account for evil, pain, suffering, and death? How do we make sense of that? It's a good question. Second question is, if God is really and truly sovereign over all things, how do human beings make real, comma, meaningful decisions? It's another good question. And again, we're not going to take a deep dive here. I just want to give you the, the sort of flying over the top biblical answer to these questions. Question one, if he's sovereign over all things, how do we account for evil, pain, suffering, and death? The Bible is very clear that God is not the cause of sin or suffering or death. He is not the direct cause of any of those things. The Bible is also clear that he is sovereign over all things. The fact that we experience everything on that list means that God has chosen to allow those things in his creation. And the Bible assures us that one day God will redeem all of it. He will make it all new. It will all be right. That's just big over-the-top answer. God is not the cause of it. He has allowed it, and in the end, he will redeem it. Second question, if he's sovereign over all things, how do we make real and meaningful decisions? Doesn't this mean we're just sort of robots going through the motions? And the biblical answer is no, absolutely not. From the beginning of the Scriptures to the end of the Scriptures, the Bible is very clear that you and I as human beings created in God's image make real, genuine decisions, and we are responsible for those decisions. We are responsible for the things that we say. We're responsible for the things that we do. We're responsible for the things that we think. We're responsible for the things that we feel. And God is sovereign over all of it. There's a little bit of a mystery there. It's not unlike when we talk about the Trinity and we say, how many gods are there? Well, there's one God. How many persons are there in that one God? Well, there's three, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is at the same time three and one. It's hard to wrap your arms around that thought, and it's hard to wrap your arms around this, but that's what the Scripture presents us with. The decisions we make are real. We're responsible for them, and God is sovereign over all of it. 
I want to acknowledge something else. Just back off the philosophy for a second. Let's just talk real life today. I think today most people, at least in our culture, I think most people today have an understanding or at least want to have an understanding that there is something exercising control over everything. There's something in human beings that sort of longs for that. Maybe you call it assurance. And you see it or you hear it when people say things like this. I believe everything happens for a reason. I've talked to people on a number of occasions who did not have any sort of orthodox, true, biblical understanding of God who have popped off to me and said, now look, preacher, I certainly believe everything happens for a reason. And I just want to step back and say, really? Why? Why do you believe that? On what basis do you believe that? I was at Applebee's and the wall art right there beside me said, everything happens for a reason. Or I was on Instagram and my best buddy shared this picture of a sunrise and it was so pretty and it said, everything happens. I don't know. Why do you believe it? On what basis? You can take that statement and you can say, I believe that it's true. I I believe that it's true. And the foundation of that in my mind is the fact that God is sovereign over all things. That's sort of a biblical worldview answer. Does everything happen for a reason? It does. Do we understand all of those reasons? Absolutely not. The secret things belong to the Lord. But he is sovereign over all things. But when you take God out of that equation, you're sort of left with, Well, I'd like to have the assurance that everything, I'd like to have the hope that everything is happening for a reason, that it's not just all chaos and random chance and processes, that things aren't out of control. I want them to be in control. There's a problem, though. There's a tension here. When we begin to entertain, as Pink says, a low view of God, when we begin to do away with God altogether, You're left to wrestle with the question, does everything happen for a reason? And if you believe that it does, why do you believe that it does? Something in us, even when you cut God out, that wants to, to have something that brings order to the chaos of life. At the same time, there's something within all of us that hates the idea that God is sovereign. We hate it, left to ourselves. We're no different than Adam and Eve. We don't want to be ruled. We want to rule. What we want, left to ourselves, is autonomy. There's your vocabulary word for the day. Autonomy means self-rule. I don't want God to rule over me. I want to rule over myself. I don't want God to set the parameters for life. I want to set those parameters for myself. I don't want somebody directing my steps. I want to chart my own course and be my own person. All of these things very popular in our culture today. What we really want is self-rule. It didn't work out very good for Adam and Eve, this autonomy business. And it didn't work out very well for a number of people through history, one of whom is a dramatic example is the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Maybe more than anyone else in history, he set out to say, I want to rule myself. 
no one will rule over me. He made the famous declaration, maybe you've heard it, God is dead. That's him saying, no one will rule me, I will rule myself. He embraced all the logical consequences of that in the philosophical system of nihilism. There's no meaning, there's no order, there's no purpose, there's nothing giving direction. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. It's just chaos. And he encouraged people to try to be, his term directly translated from German, Superman. He didn't mean the red guy with the cape. He meant the great man, the superman, the, the uberman, the powerful man who rules himself, who looks out for himself, who determines what he wants to do when he wants to do it, and who refuses to be ruled or controlled by anyone else. All of that ended for him in mental illness. He quite literally lost his mind, and that's how he died. It's a story not unlike the story you read in the book of Daniel about a man named Nebuchadnezzar who was so prone to boast in his greatness, in his power, in his sovereignty that one day God humbled him with mental illness, sending him out to the field to eat grass like a cow. And at the end of that time, at the end of that humbling, Nebuchadnezzar came back and do you know what he said? He said, now I know that there is a God who has dominion, and it's not me. There's a God who rules and has a kingdom that extends over everything, and I'm not him. You can bow up and you can bristle against this idea that God is sovereign over all things. If you do that, it never ends well. To return to the quote we talked about earlier, Pink, he does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases, None can thwart him, and none can hinder him. The question is, as I raised earlier, where do we go to talk about that this morning? What do we look at in the Bible? We could look at any page on the Scriptures. I just want you to think about two stories, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. This is where we're going to look at Genesis, and we're going to look at the book of Acts. Number one, I want you to see God was sovereign over the suffering of Joseph. It's easy for us to think that God is sovereign and in control on our good days. What we really probably need to wrestle with is, is he in control of our bad days? And Joseph is an interesting case study. God was sovereign over the suffering of Joseph. We're going to look at Genesis 45 and 50 in just a minute. Let me just give you a a quick crash course on Joseph and his life. Some of you know these things. Some of you may not know these things. Just track with me for a moment. God in the Old Testament appeared to a man named Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons by four women, and it went exactly like you think it might go. It was a train wreck. It was a disaster. It was highly problematic. The family had all sorts of issues. And in that dysfunction, Joseph was the firstborn of his father's favorite wife. He was the second to youngest. And he was the favorite. Now look, in your family, with parents or grandparents, there's probably a running joke with someone. Maybe you're the butt of that joke. Maybe your sibling's the butt of it. I don't know. But most families sort of look around at each other and say, yeah, we all know who the favorite is. 
It's the favorite grandchild. They can't do anything wrong. It's the favorite kid. Mom and dad loves them the best. I hope that's not really true in your family, but I'm telling you that it was really true in this family. There really was a favorite, and his name was Joseph. And his brothers, especially his ten older brothers, hated him because he was the favorite. When they saw an opportunity, they took it. Joseph was coming to check on them. They were far away from dad. And they said, we got him. This is our chance. First they said, let's kill him. And then they backed off and they kindly said, no, let's just leave him in a pit to die. And then they said, hey, I could use a buck or two. Let's sell him to these slave traders who are coming our way. That's what they ended up doing. They sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt because his brothers hated him. In Egypt, he gets a pretty good gig working for a guy named Potiphar until Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of assault and he's wrongfully imprisoned, no fault of his own, and he spends multiple years, several years, just sitting in prison, really doing absolutely nothing. And he has some responsibility in the prison, but it's prison. At the end of that time, when it was the right time, God gets him out of prison. He brings him into the presence of Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and he's promoted to second in the land of all of Egypt. It was a really good thing for everyone in Egypt because Joseph was the guy who had a plan how to keep everyone alive when the famine hit, and it was about to hit. When the famine hit, Joseph's plan had been put in place. He was prime minister. He was second in command. All of the Egyptians had food to eat, and the non-Egyptians could come to Egypt and get food to eat. Enter the ten older brothers. They come back to Egypt. They're looking for food. They find themselves in the presence of Joseph, and it's a, a, a really a funny story of how they find out that this is Joseph. They don't realize it at first. When they realize that they're in the presence of baby brother who they had planned to murder and then planned to leave in a pit and then sold into slavery, and they realize now we need him for food, they panic. That rightfully so, they just assume He's got us right where he wants us. Now is the moment for revenge. He's going to take it all out on us. He doesn't. This is what we read if you look at Genesis chapter 45, verse 7 and verse 8. Joseph says this to his brothers. God sent me before you. He doesn't say, you're the low-down, dirty, rotten scoundrels who got me in this mess to begin with. He doesn't say, it's all your fault that I ended up here. He believes and he trusts in the sovereignty of God. And he says, look, fellas, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. It was not you who sent me here. That wasn't your doing, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You say, that's a remarkable thing for a brother to say to his brothers when they had clearly wronged him. Maybe he changed his mind later in life. No, look at Genesis 50. 
verse 20. When dad died and they buried dad, the brothers have another panic attack and they say, now he's going to get us. He was just being nice because dad was still alive. Now dad is gone. We're dead. Pack your bags. You're going to the big house. And they come and they gather together and they say, hey, we just want to remind you, dad wanted you to be nice. Don't forget about dad. Joseph said to them, verse 19, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. You're responsible for that. You had evil intentions. That's on you. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. He comforted them and he spoke kindly to them say, well, maybe, maybe that was just Joseph trying to put a good, positive spin on a really bad situation. No, you can look up in the book of Psalms, Psalm 105, the psalmist says the same thing many years later. He looks back on it all and he says, God sent someone ahead of them to keep them alive. God was sovereign over all of it. His power and his knowledge and his freedom were exercised in such a way that he ruled and reigned over every detail of Joseph's life, even his suffering. You say, well, that's a great Old Testament story. What about the New Testament? Well, it gets even better. God was sovereign over the suffering of Jesus. Sovereign over Joseph's suffering. He's also sovereign over the suffering of Jesus. To dip our toe into philosophy just one more time, sometimes you hear people ask this question, why do bad things happen to good people? Folks wrestle with that. And on a human level, I think we can empathize with them. Maybe you have wrestled with that question in the past. Why do bad things happen to to good people? And I think what most of us mean when we ask that question or when we wrestle with that question is, why do really rotten things happen sometimes to folks? And those things happen not because of really anything that they've done. There's not a direct one-to-one cause between the suffering that they're experiencing and some bad thing that has happened in their life. Why does that happen? You can certainly empathize with people if they're asking that question, if they're looking at the life of a loved one or they're looking at their own life and sort of thinking that through. But theologically, we just need to remind ourselves there's a flaw in this question, and the flaw is the assumption that there are good people. Biblically, Realistically, the Bible says there are none who are good, Romans 3, no, not one. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. There's no fear of God in their eyes. Romans 3, they have fallen short, all of them, of the glory of God. And the real question to wrestle with isn't so much why do bad things happen to good people, but why do any good things happen to bad people like us? And if you really want to stick with the question, why do bad things happen to good people, there's one place, one vantage point from which you can truly ask that question, and it's the cross. Because the Bible is clear, there has only been one truly good person. It's not your pastor, and he's not here this morning physically, 
It's Jesus. It's the only good one. And the Bible says that the worst thing that has ever happened to any person in the history of the world actually happened to him. If you want to wrestle with the question, why do bad things happen to good people, you've got to say, why did the cross happen to Jesus? Why did the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the world happen to the best person who has ever lived on this planet? The Bible gives you an answer in the book of Acts. You can turn to Acts chapter 2. You can look at verse 22. It's the first Christian sermon ever preached. Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of God of lawless men. Those men were lawless and they're responsible for their actions. There's responsibility. But Peter says, let's just be real clear. It all happened. The cross, the beatings, the suffering, the punishment, all of it happened according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. He was sovereign over all of it. You turn the page. Look at Acts chapter 4. You see the same idea. Just a few verses later, Acts 4, there's been some persecution in the church, and the church gathers together to pray together, to pray for each other. Look at Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 24. When they heard it, when they heard about this persecution, they lifted their voices together to God, and look how they address him. The first thing they say, Sovereign Lord. We're being persecuted and we're suffering. And the first thing they say about God is you're sovereign. You rule and you reign over everything. You do as you please, only as you please, always as you please. You exercise your power over all things. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Do you see those four groups? Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, Jews. Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They gathered against your son, your Messiah, with evil, wicked, malicious intent. They're responsible for it. And all they did is what you predestined to take place. You were sovereign over all of it. You were sovereign over Joseph's suffering. You're sovereign over Jesus' suffering. And what they're saying in this prayer is, you're sovereign over our suffering. When you look at these two examples, one of the things you see is that this belief in the sovereignty of God changes people. Right? When you get it, it changes you. It changes the way you think about God. It changes the way you approach life. It changed the way Joseph related to his brothers. It changed the way Peter preached the gospel. It changed the way the early church thought about suffering and persecution. And it ought to change us. 
we'll end with this question. How should we live in light of God's sovereignty? I'll just give you two suggestions. The first is this. The sovereignty of God over all things should deepen our awe and strengthen our faith. When you get this truth deep in your bones, your awe for God will deepen. And your faith in God will be strengthened and solidified. When you understand God is sovereign, he's in control over all things, really little things and really big things. I'll let you look some of these verses up. Let me just mention them. Proverbs 16, verse 33, says that the Lord is sovereign over the roll of the dice. You throw the dice, every number that comes up is from the Lord. He's in control over all of it. Even dice do not escape his sovereignty. You say, well, they're really little. That's easy. What about big things? Well, Isaiah 45 talks about a big thing. In Isaiah 45, the Lord says through the prophet, in the future there's going to be a man named Cyrus. He's going to be a king, and I'm going to use him to accomplish my purpose for my people. His kingdom had not arisen yet. He had not been born yet. And yet the Lord says, that's who I'm going to use, Cyrus. Not my plan is if everything goes according to plan, but this is how it's going to be. I'm going to raise that man up and I'm going to use him to accomplish my purpose for my people. He's sovereign over governments and world histories and the rise and the fall of empires and who's on the throne and the decisions that they make. Another example of this is 1 Kings 12. Maybe you remember the story where Solomon dies and Rehoboam is sort of stepping into his father's shoes and he gets some advice from this group of people and he gets some advice from this group of people and it's clear to the reader of the text which way he ought to go and he goes the wrong direction and the text says this, the king did not listen to the people. Why? It was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. Rehoboam made a foolish decision. He was on the hook for that decision. It was a real decision. It was a genuine decision. He bore the responsibility for it. And then the author steps back and says, just so we're all clear, the whole thing was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. He was sovereign over all of it. What about Romans 8? Corey read from Romans 8 earlier. The hope of Romans 8 is that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the sovereign Lord. Nothing. Height, depth, present, future, angels, demons, nothing. Nothing can separate God's people from his love. He's sovereign, he's ruling, and he's reigning. It ought to give comfort to you. Spurgeon says it like this. I love this quote. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. When you get this, you understand this truth about God, it deepens the awe that you have for God and it strengthens the faith that you have in God. One last thought is this as we end. How does it change us? How should we live? We should trust God's sovereignty and the salvation of his people. We trust God's sovereignty and the salvation of his people. And I've given you a number of scriptures here. And I'm going to put them all on the screen so you don't have to flip. We're just going to read through them quickly. And there's one thing I want you to pay attention to as we read them. I've marked them. You can see it. It'll be obvious. But I want you to pay attention to the word able. Able. 
right? Remember, we're right where we started at the very beginning. What is God's sovereignty? It's the outworking of his power. When we talk about God's power and the outworking of that, we're talking about the ability that he has to do something, right? He is able to do whatever he wants to do. And that's really good news when it comes to our salvation. We'll read these scriptures as we close. You just follow along. Romans 16 says, To him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. We'll look at 2 Corinthians 9.8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. We'll look at Ephesians 3. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We'll look together at 2 Timothy. I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. We'll look together at Hebrews, two verses in Hebrews. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 7, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And one last from Jude, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. All of these verses reminding you, God is able. He's powerful. He's sovereign. He's up to the task. And when it comes to our salvation, that's great news because we are none of those things. The hope of the gospel is not we can be good enough to earn our way with God or to get our lives in line like Jesus would want, but the hope of the gospel is God is able to do in us what we would never be able to do for ourselves.